have a material witness on an aggravated battery uh, with a hang The Supreme Court of the state of Arizona in April of 1965, after this court's decision in Escobedo, affirmed... Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in Batson uh, against Kentucky. Welcome to Bears, The Bar and Beyond, the Baylor Pre-Law Podcast. And this week we are again coming to you from Washington, D.C. And our guest today is Ben Arguinaga, who is a graduate from the Honors College at Baylor, uh, has clerked on the Texas Supreme Court and the Court of the U.S. Court of Appeals, and will soon join uh, Justice Alito on the U.S. Supreme Court. Welcome, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's, uh, it's good to be here with you. Tell us a little bit about... What it's like to be uh, in D.C. in terms of coming from Texas, because I think what a lot of students don't appreciate is there is a pretty decent size alumni network here in the D.C. area. Sure, I mean it's very. Uh, I think when you when many people think of Washington D.C., they think of the law and politics. Um, but one of the things that was most surprising to me is that many of my Baylor friends here in the area, um, you know, are not lawyers and not you know, don't work for a politician, but they may mm. work at Accenture, they may work um, at a nonprofit, they may work um, at a lobbying firm that doesn't necessarily, um, you know, directly tie to politics. And so that's one of the cool things about living in the city is that you'll run um, across people from many different walks of life who, though they all, you know, some of them may have gone to Baylor, they have ended up in kind of very different roles in the same city. And so it's really nice to, whenever you go to a Baylor alumni event or meet with folks at a Nats game, it's, um, you know, it's, it's not just lawyer to lawyer, but it's lawyer to yeah. another, like, another sa- a sane person uh, who did not choose <laughs> law school. <laughs> bear, bear to bear, but not always bear to lawyer. When, you know, we, you and I have had um, a number of conversations beforehand, and, and it's been clear to me through those conversations that your time at the Honors College was something that was um, very formative to you and something you look back on very fondly can you can you explain for our listeners why that's the case and and what are some of the benefits that you got from being in that program sure yeah i think there were you know a couple of aspects of the honors college that were particularly helpful um when it came time to go to law school and and certainly time to work in a legal career after law school. So I think if you talk to um, Tom Hibbs or anybody else in the Honors College, two big selling points about you know the Honors Program in particular is, one, it is very writing intensive. So you will take numerous seminar courses that require you to produce papers at a fairly rapid pace. Um, you're responsible for a senior thesis that you'll write through your junior year um, and finish up in your senior year. And so there are um, a lot of opportunities to really hone your writing skills. And, um, re- you know, regardless whether you thought, you know, you were a good writer coming into your undergraduate experience, that was a program that really built on whatever skills you had before. And then the second is um, a lot of honors courses are quite small. I think one of my first seminars in my freshman year had only six or seven students in it Hmm. and so that was you know a wonderful opportunity to kind of uh sit in a in a very intimate setting and be able to discuss um you know the issues of the day or the reading of the day without having to you know compete with say 200 other students in a class it was very you know it it was 
it was a really, um, as I say, intimate setting that fostered discussion. And you know, if if and when you become a lawyer, you find that being able to write well and being able to deliberate and discuss and argue persuasively um, are are two skills that are essential to being a good lawyer. And I think it's fair to say to a lot of people, I think est- underestimate the the level of improvement that you will see if you're deliberate and uh, considered in how you approach your reading and writing skills because if you're reading good material your writing tends to improve but the, the, the sheer amount of work that you'll be expected to do in the honors college is I think helpful in preparing you for the additional work that you'll see yeah in no law school I, I completely agree and I think you know it's it's interesting that law schools generally have as part of their first year curriculum um, a research and writing course that is designed to teach students how to write like a lawyer. But to me, I, I think those courses weren't really designed to teach you to write well in general. And if I could go back and, and talk to my you know 18-year-old self who's starting as a freshman at Baylor, it would be that these next four years are your time to really develop your writing skills because that's you're not going to get that time back and you're not going to get these opportunities back where you have to produce a lot of written work product on a week-to-week basis um so you know to to freshmen out there or to undergrads out there who are considering going to law school certainly take advantage of all those writing opportunities because that will that'll come back to um uh, to be a blessing in the end and i think uh, i guess what did you do in order to develop those skills, did you use the writing center? Did you go and talk with your professors once they gave you feedback and actually converse with them? How can I make this better? Did you take advantage of those kind of opportunities? I did. I think there were probably a couple of ways that I approached that. Um, One was certainly taking advantage of office hours. And I mean, I think, you know, you definitely shouldn't be a sycophant and kind of suck up to professors, um, but you should take advantage of the free time that they give their students um, to offer feedback on your writing. And so from time to time, I'd go talk to a professor about his or her edits on my um, papers. And, you know, that's on the back end of the process, right? That's once you get a grade back. But I think even on the front end of the process, um, I lived in the Alexander Residence Hall for three years, and um, I was studying alongside many of my classmates who were taking the same classes that I was taking. And so it was really helpful, I think, to um, even tap uh, peers as editors before you turn your paper in, um, because I think um, it's always great to kind of crowdsource edits. And you don't, <laughs> look, you, don't have yeah. to, you don't have to accept everything they say, but it's very helpful to see different points of view. Turns a phrase that you may think are really clever, um, they might find uh, incoherent. And so um, that's um, that, w- that was one of the things I did. I especially like, especially even now as a lawyer, giving a draft to somebody who is completely um, unaware of the subject matter that mm. the written word product is about. Um, because then you'll you'll get very frank criticism. It's somebody who's coming into it cold, um, you know, doesn't really know the underlying, you know, say law you're talking about but is able to tell you whether you can communicate what a case or an issue is about in plain language. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think you can never go wrong with getting as many comments back on your writing, especially early on in your writing form, um, formation, because that will help you develop a, a plainer writing style, one that's more accessible to readers. Yeah. I'd like to 
I'd like to ask you a little bit about how students can go about making the most of their time at Baylor because there's obviously the academic side of things and that's obviously important but students also need to be thinking about building a resume. So what advice would you have for maybe some freshmen who are just arriving on campus and starting that process and also what about students who have been at Baylor for a year or two or maybe more and they're getting to that point where they've realised <laughs> Okay, I need to. I really need to start working on my resume. How can they maybe make up some time? Yeah, I. Um, so I guess on the first point, you know, for freshmen who are just starting, um, and I think I like to think of this in terms of what I could, if I could talk to my eighteen-year-old self, what would I, I tell myself? I think the most important thing from the outset is to make sure that your grades are your number one priority. Um, that is. Your GPA, you know, the, the Latin uh, words that follow your, you know, degree for the rest of your life, that's going to follow you for the rest of your life. Um, so I think making good grades should always be your number one priority. Um, but once you feel like you've, you've kind of set yourself on a good course for achieving that, I, um, I would think about what you want to do in life. So to give you an example, I when I was much younger, I thought I wanted to go into like electoral politics. I wanted to run for like the house, you know, be a senator. Um, and so er, very early on, I uh, ran for student government. So I joined the student senate, and um, I thought that that would be kind of a good training ground, a good um, first foray into like what the world of politics is like. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, it was a good experience because it taught me the things that I did and didn't like about, um, um, you know, Robert's Rules of Order and, you know, parliamentary procedure, all that, all that great stuff. Um, and I think that's helpful because if you think you have an idea of where you want to go in life and you pursue some kind of organization that maybe tracks that goal... Um, getting in earlier, you know, when you're a freshman or a sophomore and kind of testing the waters and, and, mm. and seeing whether that's really something that's for you. I think that's very important because otherwise, um, you know, you may not test the waters until, you know, you've graduated. And then if you find out at that point that that's not really the place for you, well, you've wasted a lot of, of, of time and ground that you could have spent kind of investing in a, in a different line of work. So I would say, I mean, that was, I, I would say when you're just starting at Baylor, definitely... Um, focus on grades, but but also think about organizations that might track what you want to do later in life. <clears throat> and I would say, um, you know, for people who are who are juniors and seniors and are looking to kind of round out a resume, I think it's never too late to dive into um, an organization like student government just to to experience it. Um, but one thing I found helpful was um, you would think organizations that aren't that aren't uh, career-oriented career in any way. Um, so I'm talking about, like, the bear pit here. Um, <laughs> you may think it has, like, no uh, no bearing on, like, a successful legal career, and um, you're probably right. <laughs> but You mean feeding bears <laughs> hasn't made you a better attorney? <laughs> and uh, screaming at opposing fans and face paint. <laughs> um, but here's what I found was interesting is I, you know, I was, I was on the bear pit leadership team for a year or two, and... Um, it was on my resume when I was in law school, and so when I was doing interviews with law firms or you know U.S. attorney's offices, what have you, um, there was always a question about like what is the bear pit, 
and it gave you a good um, a good chance to kind of uh, talk about your your much more fun years and your much wilder years when uh, <laughs> you were face painted on the sidelines of a basketball game. Um, so I say all that to say, you can think of pursuing organizations in the sense of something that tracks what you may want to do as a career. But you can also think of pursuing organizations that are that are just fun and that give you a good um, talking point down the road when people ask, what did you do at Baylor? Well, I, you know, I, I participated in the bear pit. Um, you know, you did other things that, that, that some people may think don't have any bearing on a career, but that were really just fun. And I would say, you know, that in, in some sense, that's really what undergrad is all about is, is, is um, making good grades and learning um, uh, new things, but also just having fun. And I think uh, if you're interested in something, you're going to be far more enthusiastic about being involved and being in a position of leadership, and, and that always helps. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, you couldn't get me to face paint for you know a million dollars right now, so. <laughs> but I was like furiously supportive of our Baylor Bears basketball team. So. <laughs> I had one more question about your purely undergrad experience. Uh, I know that philosophy was a really formative part of your studies. Why, why was that the case? What, what, what was it about philosophy that you think, first of all, got your interest, but also helped you prepare for law school and, and your career as an attorney? Yeah, so I, I think there were two things to that. One is, to circle back on what I said earlier, I think the philosophy program is another um, writing-intensive program, so you're often mm. writing many papers and the second thing is um, to tag on to that um, a lot of the work that you're doing in your papers is argumentation and one thing I found um, really fascinating in the introductory level philosophy courses was all the logic games yeah um, it was you know thinking about what a means what B means and what a plus B means if it equals C um, that kind of way of thinking is very similar to what you do in law school and as a lawyer. I mean, when you're writing a brief in a case or when you're writing um, a memo to a supervising attorney, what you're saying in, you know, in part one is here's what the law says. Um, in part two, you're saying here's how the facts in our case um, apply under the law. And then in part three, you're saying, here is the conclusion that I draw from this analysis. Now, you have to be able to prove up your conclusion, right? You have to be able to say that that your your premise A is solid and your premise B is solid and thus C has to follow. And I think philosophy, I mean, that, as I say, those introductory courses in philosophy are really all about that and making sure that how you reason from one point to another is very clear and is logically consistent throughout. And I, you know, that's... Um, in, uh, in, in the real world, that's what you do as an attorney. It's not just A's and B's and C's or strange symbols. It's, mm. you know, somebody's life and, um, you know, a provision of the Constitution. And you have to draw um, conclusions from how the two uh, work together. So, you know, I, for people who are considering law school and are somewhat interested in philosophy, you, I think that is a wonderful route to, to learn how to be a better writer and as part of that writing experience to learn how to be a persuasive writer and a clear, logical writer. And and for those listening at home, that that doesn't mean you have to be a philosophy major to go to law school. Um, but there are some intro courses that we strongly encourage students to take 
ideally before the end of sophomore year. So that's uh, philosophy 1306 and 1307. Uh, but if, if you are a junior, for example, and you haven't completed both of those courses, now's a great time to do it. Uh, the idea being that you, as you say, get those skills under, under your belt as you start to prepare for the LSAT. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. And on your point about not having to be a philosophy major, I mean that is so true. I have a friend who um, who was a biology major in undergrad, and who graduated at the top of his law school class onto an amazing legal career. Um, but I think that goes to show you, like you don't have to you don't have to be a math major, you don't have to be a philosophy major, you have to be a political science major. Yeah. Um, but if you're interested in philosophy, yeah, do, jump in with it. both feet. Yeah. <laughs> So you went to you went to LSU for law school. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, why why you decided to go there? Yeah, so there were, I guess, a couple of reasons. Um, one was, you know, as you get older, you um, you start to pay attention more to scholarship money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a that's a very real consideration for for future law students. It's yeah. it's definitely. I mean, you would be surprised how many um, law students graduate with. Um, you know, north of two hundred thousand dollars in debt, um, just just for law school. Just for law school. Yeah. Um, so that was so, so schol- good scholarships were I think one of the big factors that led me to LSU. Um, I will say another um, factor that piqued my interest and kind of made LSU stand out from some other schools I was considering was um, right around the time that I was applying to law schools. Um, there was an LSU graduate named Michelle Stratton who uh, had um, was from Louisiana, had gotten to LSU, finished up in I would say you know, around 2009 at LSU Law. Mm. Um, she went on a clerk for Judge Jones on the Fifth Circuit. She was um, a Bristow Fellow in uh, the Justice Department, and then she went on a clerk for Justice Thomas on the Supreme Court. And um, when I was researching law schools and I was researching LSU, uh, her story was one that kind of came up in the Google search results. And I remember thinking how how interesting it was um, that you know a, a state school like that in the South could send a graduate to the Supreme Court. And I think she, you know she had been the first graduate of the LSU Law Center to go um, to the court. And I remember thinking, like, man, if she can do it, I would love to just meet her and try to follow her in her footsteps. And um, so that that was that was kind of my thinking going uh, into the law school application process. And were you able to connect with her? And I did, I did. So I um, I worked in Houston um, during one of the summers during my law school career, and um, she was at a firm there in Houston, and we connected several times over coffee and lunch. Um, very gracious, very kind person, and she was. You know, she's been instrumental. I've, you know, against her wishes or not, I've adopted her <laughs> as a lifetime mentor. <laughs> um, so she's um, she's been very helpful in, in kind of the the career choices that I've been able to be a part of. Um, and so that was, I think, looking when you're considering law schools. I think it's it's often helpful to look at what that school's graduates go on to do. And if that's something you, if they do something that you want to do, then you know by all means, um, go there and try to tap into the network and follow in their footsteps. You mentioned you mentioned mentors, and it's it's funny how often folks who are guests on this podcast mention the importance of mentors. So, as a, as a quick plug, 
we do have the Baylor Mentor Network. <laughs> so if, if you're listening and you haven't made use of that, this is my encouragement to you to, to get yeah. on that fairly quickly because they can make a huge difference and you sure. don't have to reinvent the wheel if someone's done it before you. Yes. You know, follow the path that they've taken. Yeah, no, that's very, very smart. The, I guess the starting point for, for uh, law schools often comes down to geography in the sense that where you attend law school is where you're most likely, not all, not always, but most likely to end up working. Were you concerned uh, that going to LSU would limit your practice options geographically? I So, I, I mean, I guess the short answer is, is yes in part. Um, I think when I was applying to law school, I think my... Um, I didn't really know where my career was headed, and so I always kind of assumed that I would stay. I'm from Houston, mm-hmm. so I, I kind of assumed that I would stay somewhere in the south, in Texas, maybe Louisiana. Um, and so I, I think I, I wasn't much concerned at that point with what, uh, with how you know going to LSU might affect um, where I would uh, ultimately work. But I will say, when it came time to apply for jobs, you know, for my one L summer, for my two L summer. Um, there was, there were some issues that, that came up that, you know, your students may think about. And that is, um, when I interviewed with, say, a Louisiana law firm, they would see Texas all over my resume. Mm. And so their question, you know, one of the first questions to me would be, well, don't you plan to go back to Texas? So they think that I'm not, like, I'm not serious about staying in Louisiana. Mm. When I interview with Texas firms, you know, one of the first questions is, why did you leave Texas? And so they're somewhat skeptical about whether, you know, I want to come back to Texas. So you're kind of in this twilight zone um, where, <laughs> you know, firms from both states are question why, why you, um, why you, why you <laughs> left Texas or why you're in their state. Um, but that, you know, I don't think that's a serious issue. Um, especially if you do your due diligence in um, in making good grades and in networking well um, because ultimately you know if you go on to clerk you will you will work for a judge whose connections um, will help you land where you want to land um, so you know I think there are some regional considerations um, to think about if you're going to a school like LSU and um, if if you know without a shadow of a doubt that you want to stay, you know, in Louisiana or you want to be in Texas, there are a lot of Louisiana law firms who have Houston offices because of the energy market. Mm. Um, so uh, I think you know it's something to think about, but it's not something that should completely dissuade you from from going. Yeah, a good offer at a school somewhere outside of Texas might be a really great way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in Baton Rouge too, with uh, Death Valley and great college football. <laughs> we won't get into the SEC, the Big, <laughs> Big Twelve. Um, yeah, do you have a loyalty right now? Uh, always to Baylor. Okay, yeah, you good know, I, right answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, What were some misconceptions you had about law school, or did you feel like you were ready for it? Uh, tell us a little bit about what the workload was like. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have to go back to the drawing board and, and reevaluate things like your time management, those, mm-hmm. those kind of things? Yeah, so there are a lot of things in there. Um, I guess I'll start with, um, let me start with the misconceptions. I, I would say that one of one of the thoughts I had about going to law school is that you hear about how cutthroat 
it is, and I mean, you hear horror stories of of uh, students ripping out pages and treatises so that other students can't find them. Mm. Um, I, you know, some people may have that law school experience. I was very fortunate not to, and I think um, I'm very lucky to have experienced that. I mean, my classmates were. Um, I mean, law school is a competitive enterprise, but the competition didn't like bleed over into personal relationships. It wasn't this uh, hostile environment where you felt, you know, even just sitting in class that you were at odds with somebody else. Yeah. And I think that's very conducive to a good learning environment. Um, so I would say that was the big misconception I had is I was a bit wary of how uh, how cutthroat it might be. And it turned out to yeah, not be. Trust no one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sleep with one eye open. Um but on, you know, so on workload and things like that, I would say that, you know, law school is very different than um, than undergrad in many ways. I think one way is that in undergrad you have a series, you typically have a series of papers and exams throughout the semester where... Um, you know, each project is graded, and that contributes one small part to your overall grade in the course. Law school is, tends to be very different in that um, most courses um, have one final exam, and that's it. And so that can be... Kind of an all or nothing. It's, you know, it all comes down to that one exam in the course that will determine your grade in the course. And, um, you know, that'll be anything from, you know, a three-hour exam to, say, like a 24-hour take-home exam. And um, it's really, <laughs> I will say it's really nice during the semester to know that you don't have to prepare for, like, a midterm or some kind of a quiz. Um, but all of the stress that comes with those intermediate assignments kind of stacks up and, you know, around early November in the fall Mm -hmm. you realize that finals are a month away and you're responsible for a massive load of information. Um, So I will say that the workload, when you think about workload um, differences between undergrad and law school, um, in one sense preparing for exams is is, it's almost non-existent in law school during the semester until that that, you know the very end and you're and you're really getting serious about it. Um, There is another difference in the workload which is um, the reading assignments in law school, at least in my experience, tended to be much heavier than they were in undergrad. So it's not uncommon to be assigned, you know, two to three hundred pages a night of reading, and it's not light reading, right? It's, um, you know, you're reading cases and you're trying to divine legal principles from those cases, and that can be quite dry. It, uh, you know, after, not always, after a, a contracts case or two or a tax case or two, it, it's not exactly <laughs> riveting uh, reading <laughs> material. But that, you know, so your evenings were often kind of just packed full of trying to stay on top of the reading, because you know that the next morning when you show up to class, you could well be on the hot seat uh, under the fire of the Socratic method and. Um, if you haven't done the reading, it's um, it's especially embarrassing to have to stand up in front of your peers and say that you know you can't really answer the professor's questions. Yeah. Um, so so I, I will say in the workload in, in the reading sense was was much heavier in law school. So even though you have that one, generally speaking, that one major exam, there's the potential for a quiz essentially every class session. Right. 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 And some. I mean, I think there were some professors that would hand out like. They had discretion to bump your grade up, 
slightly or, or down slightly based on your class participation. So um, you, you can't avoid it either. <laughs> it's um, you know you can't avoid eye contact or pretend to to flip through your book because they have seating charts and they'll. I'll call you out. Yeah, no, I mean, I had one professor who who specifically looked for those students who were studiously ignoring the professor because he knew, like, ah, oh, that one probably <laughs> hasn't done the reading. <laughs> um, so those are a couple of ways in which the workload is, is different. The exam is different. Uh, the exam format is different. Um, and I, to your question about did I feel like I was prepared for law school, I mean, Yes and no. I think nothing really prepares you for the kind of stress that you feel around final season. Um, well, that's an overstatement. I mean, I think there there are some things, but it, nothing, at least for me in undergrad, really um, prepared me for that. Um, hopefully, by the end of undergrad, you know how you study best. Mm. And I was I, I made the mistake early of on of trying to. Um, yeah, everybody was talking about study groups and outlining and I made the mistake early on of trying to like uh, do what everybody else was doing but in reality that wasn't how I I learned best Mm. and so that was one adjustment I had to make Um, but I think you know you know how you know how you study best you you've made good grades you've scored well on the LSAT you're prepared as everybody else is going in and that's all you need what did did you do to handle the stress because I think you know that's that's an unavoidable part of law school but if you don't have some tools to cope it can be it can be crushing yeah so what what did you do to manage your own stress you know, stress levels yeah i um so i think one is making sure you keep in contact with family uh so call, yeah. call home every once in a while um uh you know call your girlfriend and um i think people like that tend to keep you sane because they remind you that there is a life outside of law <laughs> school yeah um i was so i i had a one bedroom apartment throughout law school <coughs> I don't think I had a single visitor over throughout three years. And it wasn't because I didn't like people, but it was just because it was kind of my safe space. I re- yeah. retreated after every class day and like yeah. recovered <laughs> there. And um, Fortress but, of solitude. Right, you know, right. Yeah. You know, blinds drawn uh, and soft music playing in the background. <laughs> no, but I think doing things like that makes it very easy to, to forget about life outside of law school. And so, um, you know, I would say definitely keep in contact with friends and family outside who can keep you sane. Um, another thing is I'm a huge um, college football fan and college basketball fan. So, um, you know, in the fall during football season or in the spring during basketball season, I would always make time to watch the big games on Saturday night um, and, and, and consciously shut the law books and just you know f- focus on on what's happening in the game because I think that too can can disconnect you from um, this blinkered view that the law is all there is um, and it, it'll it'll put your mind at ease and you'll get if your team wins you go to bed happy um, <laughs> so there's that benefit too <laughs> I, I think in some ways it's really o- it's easy to overlook that as a skill but the you know the workload doesn't stop when you finish law school if you go mm-hmm. on and practice you're still going to have to balance work with a life outside of the office and so i think doing what you were talking about helps you put in place uh, some rules or some guidelines so that you can continue to balance your life after law school and into a legal practice so that you are you able to have a happy legal career yeah no that's right i mean so my wife and i talk about this all the time about how many lawyers seem to be kind of enveloped in their careers and you know if we have a dinner with other lawyers it's 
it's not uncommon that all the lawyers will talk about is the law. Talk show. And, yep. uh, and, you know, I I think it's it's healthy. Look, I'm young, so I, I don't have, like, lots of ports of experience or lots of experience. But at least in my view, it's healthy to, to develop some hobbies outside of the law and to, as you say, balance your lifestyle so that you're not kind of a – uh, a one-show pony you you can you know I, I took a painting recently which is like really therapeutic oddly. Yeah. um you know i play drums i play guitar and it's you know we go out and sightsee and i think those things are essential to um to n- not just maintaining your sanity but you know also just being a well-rounded human being yeah you don't you don't have to lose yourself at law school right yeah yeah uh a lot of um, our listeners will be folks who have actually graduated from Baylor and are in or about to start law school. And one of the questions I get a lot is, how important are my grades in law school? Hmm. What would be your view on that? Well, I would say that they are, as was the case in undergrad, I think they're the most important thing. Um, now, I think there are a couple of ways to look at this. I think if you, say, if you go to Harvard Law... Um, you may have the view that you can, you can if you, the fact that you've got in, you've just got to survive, graduate with a Harvard Law degree, and that will kind of take you where you want to go um, in life. And maybe that's right. Um, but I think that um, it's what employers see on your resume, especially as you're coming just out of law school, you've not had very much work experience. The employer often is looking at the first line of your resume, which is, um, probably your education and probably your law school degree. Mm. And, um, you, you know, when firms are interviewing people, there are, there are many firms that have grade cutoffs. Um, and, you know, they may say, we're only going to look at people who are in the top 10% at the school. Um, it's unfortunate because sometimes it's, you know, just a fraction of a point that may keep you from being in a certain band. But that is the business decision that many um, law firms make. So uh, I, I would say that of the few things that will follow you around in life um, coming out of law school, it would be one, where you went to law school, and two, um, how well you did at your law school. Um, it's, it, in talking about you know conversations with lawyers, when you meet a new lawyer, <laughs> it's not uncommon for them to ask where you went to law school. Yeah. Um, and... Um, on the subject of good grades, I mean, that whether... <laughs> Facts, I'm not sure what that is. We've got... They're, they're breaking in. Someone's drilling next door. Probably aliens. Uh, let us pause, <laughs> yeah. and we will resume shortly. <laughs> Welcome back. Folks, if you do hear uh, a noise again in the future, we asked... It's still working. It's not a corrupted file. It's just <laughs> some maintenance happening next door. We'll just cover it up with, like, soft elevator music. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll edit that out. <laughs> So we were talking uh, before a little little break about the importance of law school grades. I think I think it's important to remember too for students that networks are absolutely important, mm-hmm. and it's it's important to get your name out there and to connect with attorneys and law firms, especially when you're in law school. Mm-hmm. But you can't network your way out of restrictive grades. I mean, sure. at some of these larger law firms, it's HR who's making the decisions on who gets through the first initial filter before mm-hmm. it gets to a partner you might think you have you have a connection with or somebody knows so it's you really can't shortcut that so right grades grades are important no i mean i, I think that's that's certainly right um and i will say you know to those students who are considering clerkships um 
your grades, just as you know, they're a big factor in, in law firm hiring. Your grades are also a big factor in, in what judges look at when they're um, when they are considering clerkship applicants. Um, so you know, there are there are many judges who view things differently, but there are certainly some who say would only look at if they would look at a student from like me from LSU Law. Maybe they would only look at um, you know, the top five students in the class, or maybe the top student in the class. Um, it's an unfortunate reality, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's a decision that a lot of employers make um, in considering, you know, who the best fit may be for their chambers. Law school, though, does provide you with some opportunities to do things outside of the classroom. So there's things like law review and law journals, which I, I'd love to talk with you about mm-hmm. in, in a moment. But, uh, Tell us a little bit about some of the clinics that law schools tend to have and how they're helpful. And, and maybe if you would be willing to share with us um, your experience in a, a case in Louisiana through one of those law school clinics. Sure. So typically law schools have clinics um, that are most often centered on uh, immigration and parole reentry. So there are, are many um prospective clients in those spaces, um, say somebody who's seeking uh, a stay of removal in the immigration context or, or um, someone imprisoned who is seeking parole, there are many opportunities for law clinics to serve as pro bono counsel for those individuals. And it's a great experience for law students to work under the supervision of an attorney who helps them write briefs um, and often argue before tribunals. Um, in those contexts, and it's a great kind of real-life experience because um, you're, you know, literally working with somebody's life in your hands as opposed to, you know, a hypothetical on a law school exam, and so it really brings mm. home um, the impact that you can have in the legal profession. Um, so when I was at, at LSU, there was, um, we had a law clinic, and um, it, it just so happened that during my third year, the Louisiana Supreme Court appointed the law clinic to represent um, a man named Herbert Nicholson, who was uh, serving consecutive life sentences at Angola Prison in Louisiana. Um, He had been convicted um, some years back of uh, pretty heinous crimes, uh, aggravated uh, rape and the like, and um, he had been sentenced under a new statute in um, Louisiana. And I say new in the sense that it came around, I think, about 2008. And what it was, um, and I'll say this very clinically, it's, it, it's a statute um, that calls for chemical castration of particular aggravated rape defendants who have been convicted of, of those crimes. Um, a question that his counsel had raised in earlier proceedings in his case was he committed allegedly committed his crimes in the early 90s and this was a statute this chemical castration statute was a statute that wasn't enacted until around 2008 much much um, later um, after the crimes in question and there is a provision of um, the Constitution called the ex post facto clause that basically says that um, you can't be punished under um, a law that was enacted after you allegedly committed the crimes in question. Um, 
If you are, then that's called an ex post facto clause violation. And so the question in this case was whether this chemical castration was punishment. Um, and so we, we had a chance as part of the law clinic to argue the case. Uh, we briefed the case in the Louisiana Supreme Court. Um, I, one of the best memories I had is we actually went out to Angola prison and mooted the case in front of um, the inmate council. So they had a panel of nine inmates who were serving life sentences but who have become you know, quasi-professionals on all things um, legal. And for about an hour, they grilled me on the ins and outs of our arguments. And um, it was very surreal to be in, in, in their library with them in front of me and kind of surrounded by dozens of inmates behind me who were all just watching mm. um, the proceedings. And so we, um, we did that, and then I had a chance to argue the case in the Louisiana Supreme Court. Um, and the court ultimately um, found unanimously that, that, um, that this was an ex post facto clause violation and so vacated that part of the sentence. Um, so I, you know, I think that would, when I went to law school, I knew nothing about law clinics. And um, as a th- even as a third-year law student, I hadn't participated in any um, clinic activities. And that is probably the shining moment in law school for me because it was, it was as I say, so surreal to be a part of um, a very weighty matter um, because you know to your to your client <clears throat> um, a sentence like that is it's not um, it's not hypothetical it's very real very real and yeah. um, it's it's um, it is very sobering and impacting to be a part of proceedings like that so you know to to law students who are considering being a part of a clinic um, certainly tap those opportunities because that will bring home your studies for you. Uh, a lot of folks will have heard of clinics, but also things like law review and different law journals. Can you explain a little bit about what those are and why they're beneficial, and especially for our listeners who are in law school, mm-hmm. how to maximise their prospects of getting on something like law review? Mm-hmm. Sure, so I'll start with an overview. Um, law journals in general are um, publications that are housed in various um, law schools. They are typically run by a board of editors um, who are all law students, and those editors select a couple of types of publications for their um, their particular volumes. So one type of publication are is um, a publication that's submitted by, say, law professors throughout the country who write what they call law review articles on, you know, emerging doctrines in the case law or something about a recent Supreme Court case. Um, the board of editors will will assign a couple of the editors to kind of weed weed out some of those articles and find some they th- that they think are particularly noteworthy um, and and worthy of publication. Mm. So that's one type of publication. The other is um, the editors will often write their own pieces um, and. You know, as a first or second year law student, that's your chance to uh, to write on a novel issue that nobody's written on before, and um, to basically have it published if it's you know if it's good enough. It, not every piece that's written by the editors will be published, but your goal is to be is to have your work selected as one of the works for publication. Um, so that's that's the law review process in a nutshell. You know, I think one of the benefits of being part of law review is that it teaches you um, I mean it teaches you to become a good editor so you're editing other people's writing you are um, you're you're learning how to blue book which if 
you know, if you're not familiar with blue booking, you will soon become familiar with it in law school and you will come to hate it. Um, but it is a necessary part. Can you just quickly explain for some of our <laughs> folks who aren't familiar with, with the term blue booking, what that means? Sure. So the blue book is a, um, it's literally a blue book that is um, a manual on citations. And the idea behind the blue book is that it has, it has captured every single citation that um, may be used in a legal filing, like a memo or a brief. So it shows you how to f- format case names or book names or internet you know websites um inevitably there are holes in the blue book which leads to much consternation (laughs) over like what the right resolution to the problem is um but you know it's 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 an it helps maintain uniformity in in citations so that if somebody reads um a legal piece that you've written um they can easily grasp what you're citing and um and easily access it so that's one, you know, those are, that's one of the things law review teaches you. And the other thing, and this is just kind of a, a tangential benefit, but there are, to go back to the employer point, there are many employers and many judges who view your membership on law review as as necessary for a job at the firm or with the judge. And um, yeah, I think there are different views on, on how useful law review is. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that many people view that line on your resume as, as a necessary prerequisite. Yeah. What, uh, what should students be doing or thinking about to, to maximize their prospects? Because someone who might be interested in maybe more of a niche area, something like maritime law, mm-hmm. who might want to write an article that demonstrates to them, to, to their future employers, I've got some expertise in this area or a keen interest in this area, how would they maximize their chances? Right, so let me take that in two parts. One is um, on maximizing your chances to make law review. I think um, it varies from school to school, um, but most often um, schools will look at, um, at least in part, at your grades, your first-year grades. And um, there are some schools that allow you to just purely grade on just by virtue of how highly you're ranked in your class. Mm. Um you don't have to participate in any competition to get a law review. You're just there by virtue of your grades. Um, I think it's also the case that at some schools, you, um, in addition to making good grades, you have to participate in a, what's called a write-on competition, where you have, I think we had like a week, maybe 10 days, to write um, a, a small law review type article that demonstrated good writing, um, good organization, good knowledge of blue booking and the outgoing board of editors would score those pieces and the highest scorers would make law review all law taking classes yes exactly exactly so um those are those are ways you can maximize your changes you know just get good grades and then do well on the run on competition um in terms of um you know maximizing your chances for success after you've you've made law review i think it's always helpful to to pick a when you're writing, when you're thinking about writing a paper, to pick a topic that um, people find interesting, and not just like, not just find one that is uh, that nobody's written on. So you know, nobody wants to read. Well, tax lawyers are going to be offended at this, but you know, like if you, you find like the most mundane tax topic, regardless of how novel it is, um, there will be only a small subset of lawyers who will find that very helpful or useful. And, you know, when your editors are editing your piece, they may not find it interesting at all. Mm. Um, that's not to say you don't write on it, but um, I think you should think about 
um, how appealing your piece is to a, a broader audience. Um, and so there are, you know, there are always Supreme Court cases that come out that leave that that flag open questions in the law. There are ways to figure out where circuits have split on questions of law, and um, there's often lots of interest surrounding those topics. So, um, in terms of appealing to an employer um, or a judge, you know, you want to think about whether whether you will have fun talking about your article down the road because that's you know if if it's published it's going to be on your resume for the rest of your life and for a while it may be the only publication on your resume and so when somebody asks you about it in an interview five years down the road yeah um you you don't want to you know scare them into boredom by talking about a <laughs> tax topic you, yeah. you want to have fun talking about it or or have written something that was so unimportant to you that you've forgotten a large exactly po- yeah a uh, large part of what you had to say after law school, you went off and you had several um, very important clerkships uh, with Judge Willett on the Texas Supreme Court and Judge Jones on the U.S. Court of Appeals. Tell us a little bit about how you went about securing those roles. Well, um, you know, a lot of it is just uh, right place, right time, and, you know, God's grace. Um, yeah. I I had a professor in law school who... on on a question like this um, said that, you know, these opportunities are often like lightning strike, like lightning strikes, you know, they're just kind of random out of nowhere. And he says, you know, as improbable as it is that you will be struck by lightning, there are things you can do to increase your chances of being struck by lightning. You can, you know, walk out to the middle of a field in the pouring rain, you know, with a metal pole in your hand, and um, you may not be struck by lightning, but your odds are certainly better. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, in, when I was applying for clerkships, there were, there were things I tried to do to, to walk out in that field. And, you know, one of them is, is to get good grades. Um, that is absolutely essential. Well, the second thing is, um, to, to, in thinking about which judges I would love to clerk for to think about what connections you may have to them. Um, you talked about networking earlier mm. in the legal profession. That is essential um, to building your reputation in the legal community. And so, you know, I was very fortunate to have a mentor in undergrad who was um, good friends with Justice Willett. And um, I emailed him when I was in law school. And I said, like, you may not remember me, but, you know, I, I, I noticed that you're on the same committee as, as the judge. Um, I was wondering if you had any advice on... Um, you know how to go about applying to him. Like much to sh- my chagrin, he um, he forwarded my email to the judge, typos <laughs> and all. <laughs> and uh, you know, within a two-week span, the judge had responded. I had interviewed with him, and and um, and he offered me the job. And so, it all kind of started with reaching out to somebody, uh, and not and not even asking for help, but just asking for advice. And like, what what should I do in thinking about how to apply? Um, and uh, the same thing went for applying to Judge Jones. I mean, I had some friends who had clerked for her in the past, and um, I asked them for advice on like how to approach the application process, and um, they were instrumental in 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 helping me, um, you know, interview and ultimately accept the job. And that's I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of of not just making good grades in law school, but really trying to tap into um, 
networks of friends who can help you along in your career. What are some of the benefits of, of doing uh, clerkships? Do, do they do they help you secure jobs down the road in the private sector if that's where you want to go, or are they viewed as very academic posts? What, what's the perception from an employer's perspective? Hmm. So I think it probably varies, um, and it varies um, in large part on the type of clerkship that you think about doing. Um, so for my clerkships, you know, at the Texas Supreme Court and at the Fifth Circuit, um, these were largely clerkships that, these are appellate clerkships that are often very academic in nature, you know, theoretical. You're usually thinking about broader principles of law. You know, in the Texas Supreme Court, we're thinking about common law in some cases. And um, it felt a lot about, it felt a lot like law school in the sense that you were um, considering novel questions of law and how to resolve. A lot of research. Um, a lot, a lot of research. Um, so that I think is experience is different than, say, a clerk on a district court may have. So the district courts are, at least in federal in the federal system, are um, the trial courts that handle the day to day ins and outs of litigation. So you know your motions for summary judgment, your motions to dismiss, discovery, all the all the nuts and bolts of litigation that we typically don't see in the appellate courts. Um, at least not for the first time, that's what you see in the district court. And I think, um, you know, if if you intend to go to, to practice as, say, an assistant United States attorney or to practice at a law firm that that does a lot of trial work, then, it, it, you know, it certainly makes sense to, to clerk in the district court because um, not only will you learn um, how litigation runs from the inside, but you also develop a relationship with a sitting trial judge um, who will be your mentor for the rest of your life. And, um, you know, it never hurts to, to be on, on, in, in a relationship and a friendship with a judge whom you may well appear before down the road. Um, and the same thing goes for clerking on an appellate court. Um, if you want to work in appeals or if you want to work in academia, um, that's a good training ground for developing how to go about lots of research um, and how to um, write memos and draft opinions um, for your judges that could look a lot like what, say, a law review article might work might look like down the road if you're a law professor, or a brief might look like down the road if you're an appellate um, an appellate attorney. So I think there are lots of benefits um, to um, to clerking and. It, like one of the knocks is, like, you know, the pay is not great, but uh, to me, the experience is much more valuable than any money that that they pay you because, as I say, you're developing a friendship with the judge. Um, you're learning how the judge thinks, and um, you're learning how to think as a young attorney. And law firms, uh, by and large, tend to look favorably on that. And, and you're watching like, litigators. Oh. Own their craft in the courtroom. Sure, you're yeah. watching the best of the best, um, and so when you know, if and when you decide to go to a law firm, those firms, um, depending on the size of the law firm, will often offer you very lucrative bonuses for your time spent as a clerk. So um, you know, I, I I wouldn't let economic considerations dissuade you from 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 going the clerkship route. How do you anticipate your clerkship at the Supreme Court will differ uh, from the previous <laughs> clerkships? Apart from the obvious. <laughs> uh, well, I anticipate getting a lot less sleep, I think. 
it you know I think there are um, there are a couple of ways that that it may be different um, certainly different than the Fifth Circuit so in the Fifth Circuit you're a court typically of mandatory review which means that you have to the court has to hear most of the cases that come to it um, there's no discretion to kind of say no or decline to hear a case um, in contrast, the, the Supreme Court is a court of discretionary review in most cases, and um, one of the clerk's jobs is um, to help the justice sift through cert petitions and decide um, which cases um, are, are meritorious and that the court should hear. So I think it will be a nice, um, well, I will say that the court hears 60, you know, 60 to 70 cases each year um, and uh, in contrast you know when I was in the Fifth Circuit I mean I think there were well over a hundred opinions that that you know chamber any any given chambers was working on um, just a, a much heavier workload as far as the opinion drafting goes so I think it um, it will be different in that the number of opinions that come out of the court will will be a little bit lower but I think the workload will also be heavier I think the court gets around you know, 10,000 cert petitions a year. Um, and so those are quite a few petitions to kind of sit through. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there are also, you know, uh, weighty tasks um, at the court, including, um, you know, habeas appeals and in, 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 in capital punishment cases. So there's a lot at stake. There's, there's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uh, weighty task. But, I'll, you know, all that to say, I'm extremely excited, extremely honored. This is something that, you know, talking about lightning strikes, like this is the most improbable one of all. Um, so it's a huge honor. Well, we're excited to, to see where it leads for you. You're currently at the Department of Justice, though. Um, so in another you know, prestigious, exciting area <laughs> of, of legal practice, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at the Department of Justice, what your day-to-day practice looks like, uh, and how you got into that role? Sure. Well, so I'll start with the last question first. I mean, I... Um, I have many mentors who earned their chops at at DOJ um, many years ago, and so I'd always, in the back of my mind, kind of thought that I'd love to follow in their footsteps and mm-hmm. do it at some point. Um, so I uh, so I began last year. I applied last year and began working in the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department. Um, I started off as a counsel in what we call the front office. This is the office that manages the affairs of the division um and then about a month later i transitioned into the chief of staff role and so you know on the day-to-day work um well let me speak broadly to what you know what the division does it the civil rights division is responsible for enforcing a number of laws um these may relate to voting rights like the voting rights act or the national voter registration act um we're responsible for enforcing hate crimes laws um, we're enforce- responsible for enforcing um, Title VII as it applies to public employers. Um, there are, and all told, there are a number of sections. We have about 400 attorneys in the division um, who do a massive amount of work mm. um, on a day-to-day basis. Now, in my role, um, I would say it's more, and the chief of staff role in, in this position is much more um, administrative than legal. So, I'm kind of in the middle. I, I work directly for the acting assistant attorney general um, who heads the division. 
And a lot of what I'm responsible for is, um, you know, and what that office is responsible for is reporting up the chain in leadership in DOJ. What is the division doing? Um, what do we anticipate happening over the next month or so? And so on any given day, you know, we may have to you know, brief the AG's office or the deputy attorney general's office or the associate's office on um, matters that they need to be aware of that are happening um, in the sections. And, you know, conversely, we're also responsible for communicating with and, and managing those 400-some attorneys in the sections. And, um, you know, we often get inquiries from from Congress through our Office of Legislative Affairs. We often get press inquiries through our Office of Public Affairs. There's lots of traffic um, that comes in and out of our office, and I think sometimes my role is just like as a traffic cop um, <laughs> to kind of direct the traffic to particular people or particular uh, components. Um, so it has been, you know, it's it's been a it's been a remarkable year, especially as a young attorney, being able to. Um, to work side by side, uh, the men and women of the Justice Department. I'm lucky to share um, a wall with um, somebody who's been in the department for almost 30 years, and wow. I, I don't think anything really c- can compare to um, being able to learn from people who have that kind of institutional knowledge and who have dedicated that much of their lives to public service. I think there's a theme when I, when we, you and I talk, and when we look through what you've done. There's a, I think a theme of you going out and finding mentors and, and learning wherever you have those opportunities. And I think that's something that students really need to take advantage of because mm-hmm. there's networks at Baylor, there's programs at Baylor, but there's also just people who are a lot of the time willing to invest in other people if they'll just take that first step and initiate and ask. Sure. Um, yeah, and it can feel awkward sometimes. I mean, I remember... Um, cold calling or cold emailing many people trying to develop trust trying to get a foot in the door somewhere and sometimes you don't get a response um but many other times like you say there's somebody who um is willing and eager to to lend a helping hand um and i've i've been lucky to have many mentors in my life who did that and you know i had one one time who who took me to dinner uh when we talked about you know career advice and I offered to pay for dinner and he said no 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 I've got it and I and he said well he said the only thing I ask of you is that you um you know just do the same for somebody down the road and I think that's a great um that's a great philosophy in life and you know for students who are up and coming I think there there are many people in who could be valuable mentors if you just kind of reach out and um grab onto their coattails and, and have them drag you along and and I mean that can be incredibly formative relationships and can change the 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 way your career goes but also the kind of person that you end up becoming yeah no that's definitely true um that's that's definitely true so we're in dc mm-hmm. uh and you're you've went to louisiana now you're in <laughs> now you're in uh, in dc a lot of students i think are intimidated by the idea of going somewhere outside of their home state how beneficial has it been for you in terms of where you see your career going to have been in a major jurisdiction hmm. like Washington, D.C., and uh, what has life in a big city like D.C. been like? <laughs> well, so on the last point, I mean, I I think this is one of the most interesting places to live. It's the epicenter of, um, you know, the three branches of government, right? You have Congress mm-hmm. here. You've got the Supreme Court here. You've got the White House here. 
Um, and as a result, you have um, the best of the best attorneys here in town. Not to say there aren't amazing attorneys elsewhere. That's definitely true. Um, but there's, a, I guess, a higher concentration of, of folks here in town. And that means that when you go out to um, an organization's event or you walk around, you know, the Justice Department, you're going to run into people who are extremely accomplished, extremely smart. Um, and that kind of day-to-day interaction, I think, is probably unparalleled mm. in the country. Um, so I would say in terms of, you know, how it might help your career, like, it's a, this is a really big pond and there are a lot of fish in it. And I think if you're looking for a career or seeking guidance, you're eventually going to meet somebody here in DC who will offer something that, that, that sounds like it's right up your alley. Um, you know, like practically speaking on life in the city. So it is, um, I'm from Houston and it's, it's much more expensive here. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, the first time we, we saw the rent prices or jaws dropped. Um, And, um, you know, coming to a place with with income tax, state income tax, or I guess a district income tax, um, was also a shocking realization. So, (laughs) uh, you know, there are are pros and cons, but to me, um, you know, especially early on in my career, I think we said that going to D.C. would be a great chance to branch out and see something new. I think it's much easier to make that move to D.C. early on in your career than it would have been say 10 years down the road you know if you're married and you have kids and you've really set roots down say in texas it's a little bit harder to uproot that life and come out so yeah um i would say in a stroke of independence we struck out and uh <laughs> and drove all the way from houston to uh to dc <laughs> but it just goes to show that there are great opportunities if you're willing to you know adventure out a little bit but you can always come back to Texas too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's um, that's true. I think there are, there are many people who have said, and you know, I've not yet been in this position, so I can't comment really. But they've said that um, your being in DC for some time will will give you a network that you couldn't get elsewhere. And if and when you decide to go back home, say to a place like Texas, that'll make you much more marketable, and you'll be um, you'll have a chance. Even though you're back in Texas, you'll still have some fingers in DC and that is is very helpful to some clients and some firms who have work in the DC area and need somebody who can um, who can connect them to that community so you know I hope that plays out in my life uh, if and when we go back home but in the long run I think that's definitely true is that um, your experience here in DC will will definitely shape um, your career down the road Ben, this has been a wonderful uh, opportunity. I, I think a lot of students are going to enjoy hearing about your experience. So thank you for, for giving your time to speak with us today. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about Life in D.C., I would encourage you to look at the Baylor in D.C. program where you can actually come up here, get some work experience in D.C., get course credit, and, and leave with a sense of what it's like to live in a place in D.C., uh, a place like D.C., but also to come back with real valuable experience is going to help build your resume, help give you a sense of career direction and all those wonderful things. So please do check out the Baylor in DC program. Uh, if you have questions uh, that you'd like me to follow up with Ben about anything that we've discussed, if there are areas of law that you would like to find out more, if you would like us to 
speak with a tax attorney or to speak with an immigration lawyer, um, please send those directly to me at prelaw at baylor.edu. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.